Hey, everybody, what's going on? So I was just about to say my idea to Tim. <laughs> uh, here's Welcome in, everybody who's listening. We're going to try something a little bit different. For the last few weeks, Tim and I have been coming on here and basically teaching. And we'll come on here, we share stuff that we feel confident talking about, things that we've both done a fair amount of like learning on over the last several years. And that's been great. But here's the deal. I don't want to speak for Tim, but like there's a limited number of topics that I am qualified to talk about week to week. And so we would run through those pretty quick. Yeah. And more importantly, like we both spend our entire weeks learning. And so what we want to try for at least the next couple of weeks, rather than coming in with like a specific program in mind of something that we want to convey, we've started just collecting things that Tim and I are learning over the course of the week and that we want to share with each other. So he's got a couple of ideas that he brought to the table that things that he's kind of figured out or stumbled across cool stories that he's found over the last, I guess, two weeks now. Yeah. So the goal is that rather than sitting down and just making this like a course on content or something like that, you know, we're going to keep learning and you can learn alongside us rather than from us. Um, We're going to give that a shot. So you can let us know what you think. Over the last two installments of us kind of sitting down and, and, and teaching something, we were working our way through this three-part framework of growth, where the yeah. first lever is free growth techniques, and then we went through paid. And I, we've said a couple of times that that third lever is audience-based growth. And so I would love to start this episode by just closing the loop on that and talking through that for a little bit. And then kind of, we can dive into some other stuff. Are you cool with that? Totally cool with that, especially because this is one of the things that I was most excited to hear from you, because this is one of the levers that I have very little experience on and you have like a ton of experience on. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess just just following up what you said, when we started this podcast, we made a deal to ourselves to have a good time doing it. I loved last week's interview with Kay. I had a blast doing that. I felt so inspired afterwards. You know, we're, we're going through things that we have learned, but there's so much more that we can learn. And so it's just, we're going to like learn some of this in public and be able to share it with our listeners. So definitely let's, let's close this one out. Talk to me about, about the audience lever. Yeah, sure. So I had the opportunity to sit down with Louis Nichols over at Sparkloop. I love that dude. Yeah, he's great. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know him, uh, Louis is a co-founder of this software called Sparkloop. It's a growth, basically it's a, like a referral growth marketing platform. So if you run a newsletter, you can uh, basically sign up for Sparkloop and they'll help you with everything you need to run a referral program. And they run, you know, like seven of the 10 largest email referral programs in the industry. A lot of companies like The Hustle or Morning Brew built their own you yeah. know, from scratch, but Sparkloop runs the rest. And I like Louie a lot because he has a very unique position in the industry. Like Morning Brew's referral program is probably the biggest, if I had to guess, probably the biggest in the industry. And everybody who works on it knows like what it took to build that, but they only know what it took to build that. Yeah. But... Louis is behind the scenes on 
all of these different referral programs. There are very few people probably in the world who have seen the data behind as many referral programs as he has just because you know his software runs all of these. And so he's a really cool guy to talk to and really get down to the nuts and bolts. Of like, how does this really work? Because there are ideas on how this works. And then there's the reality. So I want to dig into, some, he said some really interesting things. I want to dig into some of what I learned from him and break this down into something that people can digest. But the first thing I'll say is that you know, anybody who's listened to the last episode, right before our interview with Kay, we, uh, one of the examples we used for paid marketing was the referral program or the, the giveaway that uh, Noah Kagan did. And that's true. It is, it is paid. What I want people to maybe think of as we start talking about this audience-based growth is that it builds on the two buckets that came before. So for everybody, in case you didn't hear, the first lever that you have at your disposal for growing anything is like free marketing tactics. And the big idea there is you're you're trying to do things that get other people to talk about you. That's free. Mm-hmm. Paid takes that to the next level by you know, you're now spending money to acquire people. And again, kind of the big uh, philosophy or the keystone tactic there is you need to make sure that you're acquiring people at or below a certain cost so that you know you can grow profitably. When you get into this audience range, what you're looking at is like how the culture that you build with your audience facilitates your future growth. Okay. So then let's get into some of the things that he's taught me about this, because again, I think this is kind of a black box for most people, but he was mm-hmm. really generous with his time. I guess the one disclaimer I'm going to give up front is that Louis is pretty precise in the way that he talks about um, mm-hmm. referral programs. So if there's anything that you hear here that you either don't agree with or disagree with, just assume it was like a misinterpretation on my part, not his, because there are some things like where I think the words he might choose would be a little bit different, but I'm going to give you kind of my take on our conversation. One of the first things that we talked about was the economics of how these work. And there are a few questions that I think a lot of people bring to the table when they're thinking about doing a referral program. One is like, how big does my audience need to be in order for that to make sense? And then another that maybe people don't typically ask out loud, but it's really important is what should I be shooting for in terms of success metrics? I think there's kind of an unspoken assumption among certain builders that if you build this thing right, most of your audience is going to participate. And I was really surprised because he told me that's not even close to true. So here's, here's some of the concrete numbers that he brought to the table based on all these other successful referral programs. First of all, when to start it, he says, there's a point at which it's a no brainer, right? Like you should just have one in place because it's going to help you if you are beyond the 30, 40 or 50,000 subscriber mark. Once you're that big, as, as long as you kind of set up the incentives correctly so that you're not like losing money on acquisition, there's no reason not to have the referral program in place. At least that seems to be his, his take. You can start it earlier, but like if your audience is super small, it may not make sense. One thing that he said was that it, it, it can be incredibly beneficial early on if your focus is not necessarily on getting as many people as possible, but on creating the culture of sharing inside your newsletter. Sure. That's like the reason to start early. If you're, if you're going to start before like 30, 40, 50,000, you're going to start yeah. any smaller than that. 
do it with the intention of making some kind of like cultural shift inside your audience. Um, we could talk about ways that he suggested to do that in a second. But that first question, how big do I need to be? 30, 40, 50,000. Before that, you either don't need it or you should step into it very thoughtfully with a specific cultural goal. And then how many people are going to, how many people are going to uh, partake in it? Get this. He said, based on what they've seen, the typical referral program sees about 5% of readers attempt to make a referral. That's not even the number of people who actually make a referral. It's the ones who like send their link out or get people to click on it. 5%. And he says, if you want to be really ambitious, you can aim for 10%, right? So you, you strive for 10%. But you know, on average, you're going to be you're going to be seeing somewhere between five and eight percent, and I think that's really important for people to understand because if you are seeing those numbers already, like you know, you're in a pretty good spot, mm-hmm. and then also you know, not to be holding out for like eighty and ninety percent participation, and you can sort of plan some of your promotions with those numbers in mind. And again, if if you're only aiming for like five percent, or if you can expect five percent to be engaged, that helps explain why you're probably going to want to wait till this 30, 40, 50,000 person mark because yeah. any lower than that, and it's going to be very hard to see any significant rise. So I have some stuff. I have some like examples on how to go about maybe selecting and structuring the incentive package, but I wanted to pause there for a second and just see how does that land with you? I mean, based on what you've seen, have you guys ever run either a giveaway or a referral program? We're going to put Sparkloop on the copyblogger email list on March 1st. That's that's why I was just talking to Louie. But on Unemployable, which is Clark's other brand that he's been building, like kind of his little side project, him and Jared do it. And they showed me some really, really great numbers about how effective Sparkloop is. In terms of 5%, I don't feel like that's that low. That's kind of what I would expect it to be. I think the idea with uh, with the referrals is that it's, it's the same as everything else. It, it's a compounding effect. So it's just once you have it running week in and week out over time, it's not necessarily 5% of like a static amount. You know, it's 5% of a growing amount, which grows on top of itself, which grows on top of itself until it scales. So that, that's really the power with with the referral programs is, is the compounding on them. Yeah, totally. And, and within that 5%, there's basically two different types of people. So the vast majority of your referrers are going to make one referral. Yeah. Right. Which is interesting also, because if you look at like the bottom of any newsletter today, you'll see these referral prize categories, you know, for making three, five, 10, 50, 100, 1,000 referrals, the vast majority of people will only ever make one referral. Just one. Yeah. And one of the things Louis said was, okay, well, when you're planning, then you sort of take this barbell strategy where you are on the one hand, you structure the low end of your incentive package to draw as many of those one referral people as possible. So super low barrier to entry. I think he I think he recommended somewhere around like two to three referrals. You need to make two to three referrals to get that first prize, right? And then you have to make that prize good enough where people are like, they want it, right? Mm-hmm. 
and you're what you're and what, what you're trying to do inside of that is really just optimize the number of people who try to make that one referral. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you will inevitably have a, a handful of people in your audience who are like the whales. And they kind of come in two flavors. There's the person who is inherently motivated by games. By the way, this is where I think that Louie and I would disagree on the verbiage. So this is my take on it. You have people who are inherently motivated by the referral program itself. And like they could go buy a mug with your logo on it, but they would much rather win it, right? That, that person. And I use the word game to describe that because it's kind of like game theory type thing. Yeah. Then you also have the readers who have their own big audience and again if they see uh you know some prize that's really cool up at like the hundred or thousand referral mark and they think by the sheer nature the size of their audience they could kind of get like an easy win on that you'll incentivize them to act as well because they know they could hit that whereas the average person it's hard pressed to find like a thousand people they could refer you to so those, that's kind of the barbell strategy. On the one end, how many people can you get to make that one referral? On the other end, how can you get those few people really excited about either exposing you to their big audience or hustling in order to hit this referral count? And he had some tips for that. So one thing that's probably counterintuitive, he said, focus more on the inherent value of what it is you're offering rather than the price point. So there's like some people who, you know, they'll give away a Tesla or they'll give away a Peloton bike or something like that. And those can be, I mean, those are pricey prizes if you're not working with some kind of partner. But he said, so I don't know if I should name drop this. He described an example of one particularly well-known author in the tech and business space who only works a handful of hours per week and describes in several books, how to make that happen for other people. <laughs> and uh, when I say a handful, it's, it's less than the number of hours you could count on one hand. So <laughs> this person runs their referral program on Sparkloop, or at least did, and was experimenting with different giveaways. One was giving away like a, he said, basically some kind of electronic device. It may be, I don't know if this was it, but maybe like a an Apple notebook or something like that. Something that was flashy that everybody kind of thinks is cool and wants. That campaign performed okay. It was like, all right. But then Tim came back and said, let's just give away like 50 signed copies of this book. So 50 signed wow. copies of his own book. And when he did the signed copies of his own book, that campaign performed five to 10 times better. Than That's so the interesting. Yeah. Because I would be so much more motivated to get a signed copy of the book rather than an iPad. And that's the thing, even though it's way less expensive, right? Like yeah. you, you go to a book signing and you could get a signed copy for maybe $5 more than whatever the cost of the book is. But the, the issue is there's no other way to get it, right? Totally. So that was, I thought that was a good tip. Don't necessarily worry so much about how much money you're spending on the incentives. Instead, focus on like what's the inherent value or the sort of, um, I don't know, like, yeah, like the rarity value. Yeah, for sure. There were a couple other things we talked about that I just, I'll, I'll throw them out here and then we won't belabor this point too much longer. But uh, I hope these are helpful for people again because Louis has insight that most people never get on this process. So 
few other things related to how to set up the prize frameworks. So one thing you took me through is you said there's basically three types of incentive packages. So this is the one most people are probably familiar with. If you refer three people, you get you know, a mug, five people, you get stickers, whatever it is. And mm-hmm. that goes up and up and up. And the deal with that is it's kind of ongoing. So if you refer those people over the course of a year, you're still going to get those prizes. That's a milestone program. Then there's two others. One is like a time-bound giveaway where we'll say, hey, you know, this month we're giving away a Peloton bike or 50 signed copies of a book to each referral you get, you get one entry and then we're going to draw 50 names or something like that. So a time-bound prize draw giveaway. And then the third is like a first across the finish line. So it would be something like for the first five people to refer 10 members are going to get, you know, uh, one-on-one with the founder or something like that. What's interesting about these is that they each incentivize a different type of action for a different type of audience. So like the first across the finish line is really designed to appeal to those people who have the audience that we talked about earlier, because they're like, oh, well, I know there's like, you know, maybe there's a hundred thousand people who read this newsletter, but most of them are not going to have as much reach as I do. And so I think I can reach whatever, 10, 20, 50, a hundred people before anybody else can. And so it's kind of set up to optimize for that far left end of the barbell that we talked about. Whereas the other, like the milestone is almost the exact opposite, right? So if you have a large audience, um, milestone programs remove any fear that somebody's going to put in effort and like not see a payoff. And so his kind of final takeaway was what's the best setup, the best, like where you're going to see the best performance is actually combining the two. So an ongoing milestone program coupled with some kind of giveaway every one to two months, whether that's time bound or first across the finish line, something like that. And then in terms of choosing those prizes, okay, I'm, that's kind of the end for Louis. Although he did say this, like when it comes to choosing the prizes, a couple of things to think about would be like, first, how many people are you sending this referral program out to, right? So how big is your audience? How much do they want the prize? Then here's the really important one. How many other people like them do they know? Because if you have a program like Morning Brew, which is like, you know, college kids who read finance stuff, it's pretty easy for those readers to find somebody else to share it with. But if you run, you know, like a newsletter for divorce attorneys or something like that, Mm. maybe they know a couple of other ones, but they're not going to know a whole bunch. Most of them won't know a whole bunch of other people who need that product. So when you're thinking about whether or not to use a referral program or like audience-based growth methods, it's important to consider how many people in your audience know other people like them. That's super interesting. Yeah. I never would have thought of it like that too, because you could have a group of a hundred thousand people, but those hundred thousand people might be in some kind of click that doesn't necessarily incentivize that they all know each other. Mm-hmm. Right. As opposed to, yeah, like you said, morning is a great example because like all college kids know other college kids, right. but, but I mean, I, I guess divorce attorney is a pretty good example. 
a divorce attorney probably knows a handful of other ones just from the industry, but they don't hang out in like, you know, dorm rooms with divorce attorneys. Yeah. Yeah. There's probably some other version of that too, where it's like people are actually negatively incentivized to share because they're competitors. Right. And they want to have kind of the inside track. So he mentioned a couple of newsletters that I'll, I'll mention here because they're doing a particularly good job of this. So the first is Brennan Dunn, who writes a newsletter called Create and Sell. Yeah, the right message guy. You know? Yeah, yeah, of course. He did. I've never spoken to him, but um, I, I know him and I think he knows me. He's got a really cool software called Right Message. It's always, it's, Right Message has been way too sophisticated for me. Like, I'm just, <laughs> I'm good with like a couple of lead forms and funnels on ConvertKit, but Right Message is, is really, really cool. And I know that Louis, Louis uses Brennan's newsletter as like a case study pretty often because Brennan is like highly, highly sophisticated in how he segments his audiences and stuff. So I think he'd be a really good example. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. The thing he pointed out to me was he said, Brennan does a good job of like writing in a way that's tweetable and then making sure some of those poll quotes, the button is right there to tweet it. Yeah. So he'll write. And I thought that was brilliant because I'm like, oh, of course, you're putting all this time into content. But why don't you make sure that the content itself is super like makes somebody else look smart by sharing yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I guess Brandon does a good job of that, which is cool. So he's one. And then I might pronounce her name wrong, but I think the other is uh, Leda Solace. She writes SEO FOMO, which is a newsletter. And apparently she's just quite good at the cultural side of things. So like calling people out, saying thank you, displaying who the highest sharers are, and really creating a culture of sharing inside her newsletter, even though it's on the smaller side for now. Um, So those are a couple to check out if people are really interested in this. But basically, that is most of what I've found researching referral programs. The only thing that I would add to it is when you look at a milestone program. In the past, I've referred to this as a game, and I think that's a term that Louis might disagree with, but I use it to mean something like, I think you can think through these programs using the principles of game theory, which speak to like the motivations of people involved and how they'll react in different circumstances in order to maximize your chances of success. So one thing when it comes to incentive structures that is really important that I think it often goes missed is if you build it right, ideally, your cost per acquisition should go down as somebody continues to move up through the ranks of your incentive structure. So if you look at like, let's say somebody giving away stickers as their first reward, and then maybe a keychain and a mug. If you look at the cost that you pay for each of those prizes and sort of total it up and divide it by the number of new subscribers you're going to have as a result of that referral program, as somebody works their way up the chain, your cost per acquisition should go down. Ideally, I think that's something that often gets overlooked because people just think of it in terms of like, well, what do people want? What's going to motivate yeah. people? But there's a business side to this too that, that, that often gets missed. So that's the one other thing that I would add. Again, I don't think Louis would disagree with the economics, but I, I, I've in the past, he's objected to the term game. So I don't want to put that word in his mouth, but that's how I think <laughs> about this. Yeah. He was just, he was, he was really generous. So if you, if you uh, are interested in more on this, probably go check out, I'm sure Sparkloop is like publishing 
cool stuff about this as well. They got a pretty cool blog. Yeah, just go follow follow Louis on Twitter. He he's he's very similar to you in that a lot of what he tweets about is a is specific to newsletters and about email publications as opposed to I guess what you could call like traditional email marketing. He likes newsletters in the same way that you do. So yeah, he's really cool. It's a great software, and Louis is super fun. All right, is that what you got on here with uh? insider tips from so-and-so and so-and-so's referral programs. <laughs> Is that where this was inspired from? <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Do you feel like I covered that? Did I get enough from actual, from, uh, from the Definitely. specific referral program? If there's only one thing to add, I, I think I would add that referral programs are very simple. Um, I, I find one of like the educational barriers with the referral program is setting it up. And people think like it's a really good idea. And then when they get to setting up, they, they kind of freeze. But it's like a super, super simple software. And especially if you use it with ConvertKit, there's even a layer of ConvertKit that Sparkly basically comes with the, um, the tier, like one of the higher tiers. And so it's already baked into the software. That's um, right. Yeah. So it, it's like, it's so easy to, to set up and, and so worth it. And there's, there's nothing but upside from it. So, yeah, I mean, geez, it makes perfect sense to me just in terms of the behavior of certain people. I mean, it's the same as everything, right? You're going to have a few people that the majority of the people are going to do it one time. And then you're going to have like a set of outliers who generate the vast majority of your referral subscribers. So that's the barbell you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's the behavior of the subscribers themselves, which is... What, what we talked about in terms of the the people in your email list who know other people like them in your email list. And I think with those two things, if you have an audience that is potentially full of other people who also have audiences, that's the real ticket to this tier three layer of using other audiences to grow. And so I think that wraps it up nicely. You know, we we went through what I feel like is my comfort zone, which is basically um, the the free, you know, the long, slow, but scalable trek through <laughs> through like the, the world of the internet, building an audience. We have the paid model, which we went over some cool stuff last time, but traditionally, let's just call it advertising. I think you're right. I think like what um, Noah does with the giveaways is a little bit more along the lines of, it's kind of like a hybrid between the paid and then like the leverage audience. And then the third tier, which is is using the people that already follow you to get people to follow you. And, and with, with those three things combined, I think anybody can build some kind of uh, following that can provide like a legitimate income for them to live and thrive off of. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's brand is going to be doing 20 million a year, right? But I I just really think if there's one theme in the show is that every hobby, every interest has a community around it. And if you have engagement around a community, then that means you have like incentive. And if you have incentive, then that means you have um, willingness to buy shit, basically. So if you, if you follow those three things, I mean, really, you can't lose. You might stumble along the way and fall on your face a couple of times, like all of us have, but I, I still really, really believe that if, if you just stay after it with consistency, like you, you can't fail. And so anybody, 
anybody listening over the last couple of weeks, you know, we talked about some real technicalities here, but it's, it's pretty simple. Pick a lane and do it for like a couple of years. And it's, you know, nothing in life is a guarantee, but there's a part of me that always feels like if you just do it, it will definitely, definitely work. You know, like it will absolutely work. Just keep going. This is not guaranteed, but yeah, it will yeah. definitely, definitely work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was a good way to wrap that up. Now, yeah. you, you've got a couple of things on this sheet that I'm dying to hear about. Cool. And I'll let you pick whichever one you want to go with. So there's there's two here. For people who are listening, we basically structured this like, We've got a sheet. It's a shared spreadsheet, and we and this is we we stole this idea from uh, Sam and Sean over at My First Million. We basically drop ideas in here in a way that like it's supposed to be like the hook. So I don't I have no idea what he's about to talk about, but both of these sound very interesting. One's how ConvertKit went from fifteen hundred MMR to hundred K MMR in twelve months, and then the other is what is the outlier algorithm? Which one of those do you want to do? You know, I'm really excited about the outlier algorithm. I think I was really excited to share um, Nathan's Twitter thread about this one specific tactic he used, but I'm going to save that for next week because I found this article called the outlier algorithm. Well, actually the, the title of the article, hold on, it's in my Rome account. While most people fight to learn, quote, in-demand skills, smart people are learning rare skills instead. So I, I found this article that absolutely fascinated me. It's, by, it's written by a guy named Michael Simmons. Uh, he's a writer on Medium. If you just Google Michael Simmons, uh, he's got 63,000 followers on Medium, and he writes for Entrepreneur Magazine. He's written for Time, Fortune, and Harvest, Harvard Business Review. I even followed up with him on Twitter. He and I are going to chat on Monday. He said he's interested in some automation type stuff because I was just, I was such a fan of this article. So the outlier algorithm is under the, is a philosophy basically that in order to be massively successful, you have to find the things that nobody else is good at. And typically won't succeed because if you do what everybody else is doing, you're going to get what everybody else gets. But the problem is what everybody else is doing statistically is usually accurate. And so how is it that you find those outliers, which statistically will be wrong, but every once in a while will be right. And like the tremendous upside on, on finding that algorithm, oh, excuse me, on, on finding that, that one advantage. So Here's, here's a couple of quotes from it. And these are quotes that I think a lot of people have heard before, but these are just dots that have connected for him. He was looking at realtors that had found significant upside over a significant amount of time. So they weren't just one-offs. They were people that like proved to have success in the long game. Okay. You want to be greedy when others are fearful. You want to be fearful when others are greedy. It's that simple. Quote by Warren Buffett. Uh, this is a quote by Howard Marks. He's the founder of Oak Tree Capital. In order to get to the top of the performance distribution, you have to escape from the crowd. Okay, so it's, it's a lot of contrarians, more or less. Uh, here's a quote from Peter Thiel. The best projects are likely overlooked, not trumpeted by a crowd. The best problems to work on are often the ones nobody else even tries to solve. And so there's a theme here because there's a reason why nobody else is trying to solve these problems. Because statistically speaking, these are problems that 
won't necessarily that that solving them won't have an upside, but one of them, a few amount of them will have a tremendous upside. Okay. And so here's the really cool part. This is the outlier algorithm to put simply each of these innovators and investors are saying you should focus on investments that are rare and valuable. In other words, you should focus on the star below if you want big profits and impact. So clearly this article was written under the context of investing, but the philosophy shows with anything, with writing, with content marketing, with business, with, with sports, with just exceptionalism of any kind. So it's kind of like a, like a matrix, basically. And the top right is in a star, which is rare and valuable. Because if you're in the top left, you can be rare, but not valuable. I'm trouble thinking of an example, but there's also something that is not rare and not valuable. But then this is the tricky one, valuable, but not rare. And so here's the example that he was using. Let's say you have a, a disease that is terminal and will definitely kill you. It's like, well, what are you willing to do in order to get that disease cured? Do anything, right? Because it's your life. Of course, you got to do anything or else you're going to die. But what if the cure to that disease is very, very common? You know, let's just say, I don't know, let's say you have scurvy, right? And then you find out that all you got to do is eat an orange. You know, it's like, (laughs) that's a very, very valuable thing, but it's not rare. And so this is the one that's the trap, the valuable, but not rare. And I, I was thinking about this so much with Twitter with just social media in general. Um, in some cases, I was even like reflecting on myself as somebody that's been like such an advocate for long form writing. Luckily, long form writing, I think is still rare because it's so difficult to be a good writer, but content creation is not rare, you know? So this is still the, the avenue for like exceptionalism where yes, there's a lot of written content out there. There's a lot of content in general, but there's still only a very, very small amount of like highly, highly valuable written content. And so th- this made me feel good. Okay, so here's, here's we, the algorithm. Can we, can we pause on this for just a second before we sure. go on to the algorithm? Or wait, what is the algorithm? To be an, is, that, is that that one sentence there? Yeah, to be an outlier, you need to be a contrarian who is smarter than the market. Okay, let's pause on this idea for a minute and, and dig even deeper because there's a couple of things that you said that I think are worth pointing out or double clicking on. So for anybody listening, we're looking at like an Eisenhower matrix, right? And Tim said, on, on the one hand, the binary is, is something rare or not rare. And then on the other axis, is it valuable or not valuable? What I think is interesting is when you really get into it, any particular skill can be shifted around this matrix, depending on the times. And then also like how you couple it with other things. So as you said, content creation is still rare and valuable in, or sorry, long form content is rare and valuable under some circumstances. And I would go so far as to say that if you were to couple that with something else, you can actually boost both of those aspects, right? Like long form content on web three. Yes. Which is becoming less rare, but uh, (laughs) the reality is by stacking different rare traits on top of each other, you can kind of build this moat and protect against any kind of slip where something may suddenly become more available. I think 
niching down is a really interesting example of this. Like, again, Web3 is one example, but like you gave this example in one of our early episodes, you said that one of your first jobs was doing product reviews for like a patio furniture company. And ever since then, that struck me as such an interesting example of a niche because it's something that nobody would think of when they were just, except somebody who literally runs a patio furniture store. Nobody else would think to go specialize in that, but you could. And because nobody else is doing it, if you write good copy and you specialize in that industry, you are the rare, valuable copywriter. So I think there's ways to use this to your advantage, even if the thing that you're going after isn't necessarily perceived as valuable or rare by the broader market, just by niching down or stacking skills on top of each other. And then one other thing that I'll just say, I like, I, I really like this model it, and this idea. It reminds me of the, uh, I think this might've been Naval who said, if you want to make outsized returns in investments, there's, there are basically two factors at play. Are you right or wrong in your thesis? And are you in consensus or out of consensus with mm. the rest of society? Because if you're wrong, it doesn't matter either one, right? You're not going to make money. But if you're right and you're in consensus with everybody else, you're also not going to make a lot of money because everybody thinks the same thing you do. So similar to what you're saying here with like, you have to be focused on rare and valuable. I think if you want to make large returns at any point in your career, it's important to think through this lens of like, what's rare and valuable. And then like, what am I right about that everybody else disagrees on? And then go follow that. I totally agree. I'm going to stop the screen share for a second and, and talk personally about it. The reason why I sent um, this guy, Michael, the writer, a message on Twitter was because it, it struck me at such an important time. I mean, you know, I've been in Miami. I've been here for a month. I got the beach and got some time to like reflect and think. Um, we've been making some, well, we talked about this last week with Kay. I've been making some real internal changes with my company where I'm, I'm basically centralizing everything. And it's very uncomfortable for me because I've built all of these like other independent brands that I'm not just bringing all under one roof, you know? And it, it had me thinking about like, what am I now if I am not the content person in my company? And uh, I wouldn't call it an existential crisis by any means. I was just sort of thinking like the last 10 years of my life has been focused on a rare and valuable skill where I've more or less been like the nation's leading expert in long form written content for the addiction treatment industry. Like, I, I can't think of anybody in the world, really, that has more experience at this one very rare, but very valuable skill. And so now, if I'm not going to be focused on that anymore, I was just really thinking, like, where am I going next? And I've been having such a good time with automations and with sales funnels and with copy. And I've been really tinkering with it, like having a, a just a great time with it, experimenting. And uh when I read this article, there's a part at the very end of it that um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it really was like a ding, ding moment for me. I was like, oh, man. So the next 10 years, I think me personally, I'm dedicating fully on segmenting and automation because I know that the scale of or excuse me, the skill of creating an audience, quote unquote, 
isn't as rare and valuable as it used to be because the way the economy is going, like everybody needs to have a following in one way or another. Like we're all our own mini economies now. Like we're all so long tailed more or less where we, we all belong to such like micro communities because of the internet. And so if my skill, I don't want to say not rare, like I'm not trying to underplay what I do. I'm just acknowledging that things evolve and what is the next like 10 years going to be like for me? And I, I had this realization that, man, like that's my move. I, I know how to drive traffic. Like I really do. I know how to drive traffic to an audience. I know how to collect emails and I know how to drive leads also. But after that, like what happens after that initial point of contact? And that really, really is where like the money is made because that's, that goes from interest into taking action. And so, yeah, like I know I'm speaking a little bit personally of it, but I just had this realization like, damn, that this is where I'm going to be for the next 10 years. Like I'm going to master this rare and valuable act of automating sales copy so that that laborious process that at one point used to take like dozens of phone calls and hundreds of emails back and forth and customer service can just be all completely automated. And now, man, like with Zapier and ConvertKit and Podia and Thrivecart and all the integrations going on, I'm having such a blast with it. And I just, I really feel like this is the future for me. So this article really spoke to me. That's fascinating. I have a follow-up question related to how you're thinking about that. But before I get there, I'm curious, did, what else did the article say related to identifying valuable uh, traits? Sure. Does he give some kind of framework for thinking about value? While most people search for in-demand skills, top learners search for rare and valuable skills. So he's just got some examples. Amateur learners focus on popularity as a proxy for value and ignore rarity. Professional mm-hmm. learners add rarity and focus on true value. Becoming an amateur is not a stop on the way to becoming a learning pro. It is actually fundamentally different path and way of thinking. And this what I thought was so cool. This really reminded me of like Stephen Pressfield where he talks about going pro, where it's not necessarily that in order to get pro, you have to go through the path of being an amateur. In reality, like 95% of the people go through this amateur path. And there's a small minority of people that go straight to this like highly rare and valuable path. And, th- and that made me think because I've always been a believer in like, pay your dues, go through the process. And I think the way he says it is a little bit of an oversimplification. It's not that binary, but even still, it it, it hit a mark with me. Okay, here we go. This is the good part. How do we find rare and valuable skills? Get started with four simple rules of thumb. First, it's really hard to beat the market. He's talking about finances, um, but just assume the market as like the skills market, right? As I said, in financial markets, 90% of professionals investors do not beat the market. The same is true in many other markets. Okay, second, it means being misunderstood for a long time. This is the hard part because you got to have the stomach for it. You know, like I remember for years and years and years in an industry like healthcare, where so much of it is still based on like referrals and insiders and doctors referring to each other, being believing without a whole lot of evidence, by the way, that when people are searching for intimate service, intimate services, such as addiction treatment, or even stuff like, you know, like sexual problems, they go to the internet, 
you know, and like Viagra was another example of that. I used to look at Viagra and think to myself, like, people are doing this on the internet because they're a little bit embarrassed and ashamed by it. And so that was one of the beliefs I had about addiction treatment. And uh, it was hard to not have any evidence for it and still be all Hmm. in on it. So that's the real where the rubber meets the, the, the road. In addition, it's extremely time consuming. Yes, absolutely. Finally, it's confusing. When one first starts with the outlier algorithm, it can be hard to find rare and valuable skills. The consensus view is often so entrenched that we are even blind to the idea that there could be another credible perspective. That was the bam moment for me because everybody does what everybody does and you see what everybody does and you think it's what you should be doing. And so like, it's so confusing to go the other route without a whole lot of evidence that your route is actually the more direct path to success. Yeah, man. And after reading this, it just, it really, really hit me. It's not that rare and valuable to build an audience anymore. It is super, super rare and valuable to figure out how to provide such value that they buy shit. Because we talked about before, Justin Timberlake, a couple million followers, right? Can't sell books. And so- Can't sell books? Yeah. <laughs> and so like, it's just, it, it, it hit me, man. I had like a revelation. I'm telling you, this trip from Miami has been- uh, been really good for me. And I'm like really excited about learning these new rare and valuable skills. Okay. So I, I like this a lot. I always am a fan of stumbling across a new piece of content that like unlocks new ways of thinking. I have a couple of opinions on some of the things that he said, which I'm going to throw them out here just to battle test this a little bit for people. So I don't know that I would agree with the statement that it's hard for a long, that it means uh, what was it? it means being wrong for a long time or being yeah. seen as wrong. Is that what he said? Being wrong for a long time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's dig into this one because I think there's there's something interesting here for anybody who's thinking about this through a business standpoint. One of the things that we had said on this podcast a couple of weeks ago was like, if you're looking to build an audience-based business, there's kind of a framework. One step one, cash flow, step two, trust and influence, step three products. So I think I get what he's getting at, but I would temper it with a couple of add-ons, which is this. First of all, if you find a really valuable skill, like I think you know you've actually stumbled on real value when you're not being uh, told that you're wrong. Like If you were to go to somebody right now and tell them, I can tell you how to start making money on your audience. And like, I am the expert in conversion. There is zero people on the planet who's going to be like, Tim's out of his mind. Like, that's not, that's not what businesses need these days. Anybody who thinks that that's wrong is like, is crazy. So if you're talking about world changing technologies, I do think you, you're right. You need to have a stomach for being told that you're wrong because most people And, and to some extent that might be what he's getting at here. Like if you want that, you know, yeah. hundred million X return, like Zuckerberg or Bezos level. In fact, the people that he quoted right up front there, right. Buffett, Bezos, all these people. Yeah. So just because a visionary has been proven right for now, doesn't mean they can't lose it. And the, the interesting recent example of this is, uh, stock that you can buy that's like a bundle of all these high tech stocks it was growing like crazy people like oh, yeah, he fact, lost I've like got a billion dollars in a day yeah 
Yeah, you guys wrote about it a bunch. I know exactly what you're talking about. I can see his face. Yeah. I don't even know the person, but let's just call it a fund. It was like a it was a fund that focused on high-tech stocks. It grew like crazy, I think 300% or something like that. And then obviously with the recent downturn, it imploded. Can you see this in oh, Photoshop? Oh, there's crash and burn. Yeah, so the top line for everybody listening like uh, or for everybody watching, top line is this you know, high tech stock bundle. Bottom line is warm is uh, Berkshire Hathaway. And so he kind of continued with this slow and steady wins the race. So this visionary on the top end was flying high. And then all of a sudden he blew up all the way down and then came back to meet Warren Buffett. And I'm still kind of thinking about this out loud because maybe I'm wrong. At that time, Buffett was considered wrong right because he wasn't buying into all these high tech things yeah so maybe this guy's right and you do just kind of have to hammer through but i would i i think the the thing that i'm driving at here is i would just caution people uh if you're building a business maybe don't buy into the idea that you're gonna have to be proven wrong for years before you see a return maybe that's what we should say because like buffett's seen a pretty consistent return over time and i think if you were to get into uh conversion optimization, you would see a pretty consistent return right out of the gate. And so you as a business owner should not look at a lack of success as some indicator that you're like on the right track for some big payoff down the line. You could just be wrong, right? Look for something that is making you money now and will continue down the line. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here. No, I think you're totally right because if somebody came to me today, I would still say the best thing that they could do is start a blog. And I think that's probably going to be the case. Oh, I can't I still can't see any. It's it's just like the only the only thing you ever own on the internet is your domain and your email list, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like I don't see that changing anytime soon. So there are tried and true skills that can provide you with the ability to love your work. That's that's really what we promote here at Copy Blogger. You know what I mean? Like do work that you love and make a bunch of money because what else could be better? But I think there is still something to continuously being on the hunt to see things that like other people don't see. It, it doesn't, and by the way, it doesn't necessarily always mean that it's risky, right? Like I think if I were to read that article, you get the feeling that like, wow, these are just gunslingers that are like, I'm, I'm, putting all of my money on like black 36 and just spinning the wheel. It's not necessarily about that. You can take risks in a few different departments, but you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Jim Collins from Good to Great, where the first chapter is uh, shoot bullets and then shoot a cannonball, where it's you shoot bullets in a bunch of different directions and then you just figure out like my aim is on point. And if I shoot this, Every time I'm going to hit the target. And then when you do, you know that you can really load up. Which I guess looking at in, in my example, that's very similar to what it was as well. Like I didn't just start off by seeing this opportunity within this particular industry and, and building like a, a company around it. I was writing about my own journey on Cerber Nation. You know, like I was shooting a ton of bullets in a ton of different directions. And it, and it wasn't until I started writing about... Um, certain things that I saw the pattern and I saw the opportunity. 
And then even that, I didn't quite go all in. Like I needed a little bit of assurance to go all in. But once I knew that my aim was on target, I went all in. So yeah, I think you're totally right. I guess if we're summarizing it, the the article in finance, especially because finance and tech has this like culture of you know profits, right? And that's that's kind of like a bunch of nonsense. The majority of it is just regular people making above average returns, which is what you want. And if you can find, if you can be on the hunt for opportunities that are looking in a different direction from the crowd, that really is where you can make that kind of life-changing home run. And, and so I think that still pertains true, regardless of the measured approach. I like this. What I want to know from you yeah. is how are you thinking about deliberate practice for both the skill of spotting valuable skills and this specific example of becoming a, an expert in conversion. And I'm putting you on the spot there. Cause I think that's kind of a, that's a, yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's the perfect example because you know, it's funny, me and Brian Clark were talking about this a little bit um, because he's, he's a little bit more tentative to pull the trigger and my style has always been like, be willing to fail in public. And mm-hmm. so even with things that have like a really solid reputation around it, and maybe I'm, I'm a little bit too lackadaisical around it, but even still, if I had to choose one or the other, I would choose my view, you know, where it's be willing to fail and take failure, not as failure, but just as data, because that's all it really is. You know, like success is actually continuous failures over and over and over again. Like there's no such thing as like, I made it, you know, like, oh, I did it. I succeeded. It's, it's really not like that. It's just a continuous, like herky jerk motion going in a certain direction. Hmm. And so my deliberate practice is always <laughs> like, like I said, maybe a little bit too much, but is always just to go for it and then see what happens. I think that's way, way better. You, yeah. Are you into skydiving at all? Do you, are you a skydiver? Uh, I would be if I could be for sure. <laughs> I've gone I like skydiving definitely. And every single time, you know, I feel like alive. And then 30 minutes later, I'm like, why do I even want to do anything? Why don't I just jump out of planes like, <laughs> for the rest of my life? That's what I want to do. <laughs> I, so, okay. So this is good. Like one is, kind of inoculate, you, gotta, you have to inoculate yourself to the possibility of failure. And you do that through just like taking repeated shots. And I like that, the, the example you gave, fire bullets, then cannonballs. So for me personally, one thing I struggled with is confidence in my own ideas. Yeah. And there was specifically one line from Ray Dalio's book, Principles, that helped me with this, where he at some point he said that he realized he had a tendency to be right, but early. And I had never thought of those as a, like a potential con uh, combination. Right. Mm-hmm. As soon as he said that though, I was like, Oh, like I've, I had never felt so uh, aligned with something that an investor had said before, but like this concept wow. of being right, but early. When I heard that I started kind of reassessing, some of the deep like predictions or bets that I had made in my own life and realizing, and there's like, there's bias to this, right? I'm kind of choosing to focus on the ones that were successful, but there, 
this was true for me. And it's probably true for other people who are listening to this. You've probably made bets at some point in your life that were right, but you were just a little bit early or you didn't Mm. stick with it long enough for it to actually pan out. And this is like every entrepreneur has an example of like, oh, I had that business idea. You see some business that gets a bunch of funding or sees sees some huge exit. And you're like, man, I was thinking about that back in 2008. So that concept was really helpful for me. And then one way that I've taken that into deliberate practice is through like small bets in the stock market. As an overarching rule, I don't buy individual stocks. I have Uh, some HubSpot stock because that's part of my employee comp. And then I have most of my money, 99.9% of anything that I'm investing is going into index funds. But I, I have a very small amount, and I'm talking literally, you know, several hundred dollars that I'll take and I will frequently move into a company that I think is going to go up because, and it's specifically for this, it is specifically to develop comfort with making a decision that I don't necessarily have proof for, and then kind of Mm -hmm. letting it play out over time to see if that was right or wrong. And I, there's, you know, plenty to suggest it's not perfect, right? There's a lot of luck that plays into this, but one of the most important skills, and maybe he covers this in the article as well, it's one thing to be able to identify opportunities. You need to be able to take action on them too. And actually, this I, this is something that I learned during the pandemic because it's literally my job to research trends. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff that just because of what I do for work every day, I saw coming and didn't capitalize on. Oh, um, for example, like I was reading research reports on the, the the used car market and how that was basically going to blow up uh, probably April 2020. Wow. Like we were already seeing because, you know, manufacturers have been shut down, their parking lots were empty. So you knew like the backlog of new cars coming in was uh, going to drop dramatically. Nobody could have predicted the chip shortage the same way that it probably played out. But long story short, I had a front row seat for um, the, like the used car market. And then some of these stocks went crazy. Like what was it? Car, was it CarMax or one of the, one of the stocks related to used cars, a used car seller went nuts. When that stock popped off, I realized I was like, damn it. I was reading about this months ago mm-hmm. and I should have been in a position to do something. And this is when this fundamentally changed my investment thesis. Uh, and this, and this is how I now think about opportunities. So there's this idea that what do they say? Like success is when preparation meets opportunity, right? Yeah. It's incomplete. It's right, but it's incomplete. To get success, you need three things. You need to be able to see the opportunity. Uh, You need to be in a position to do something about it. And then you need to do something, right? Those three things. If If you can see an opportunity and you have money on hand, but you don't actually invest, you're not going to see any upside. If you can see an opportunity and you don't have any money on hand, like it doesn't matter, right? Your hands are tied. You can't, you can't invest. So in order to capitalize on these rare and valuable opportunities, uh, I think it's helpful to just think through that, that concept of like, you need to be able to see the opportunity. You need to be in a position to do something about it. And then you need to do something. And, and then that, do something about it. Yep. And that third one is the hardest one. And you have to look for opportunities to practice it. You look for opportunities to take bets, like you were saying. And I think there's small ways to do it. Like it doesn't have to be huge. 
but you kind of inoculate yourself against this possibility of being wrong and you get used to trusting yourself. And then, yeah, yeah, you're going to be wrong. You're probably going to be wrong most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah. But a couple of them are going to pay off big and that's all that really matters. You can be wrong. You can be wrong most of the time, as long as you're making the right bets. So I like that deliberate practice, take shots and then build the skill of taking those shots of taking those shots it is a skill then this is perfect i think this is the perfect time to sign off i gotta go wake up my kid anyway but we always come away from these things with like a little bit of a a a lesson right it seems like we just have a conversation see where it takes us and then wrap it up with a lesson and i and i think for me one of the things that i have done well and believe me i've done plenty of things not well more so not well than well but one of the things that I've done well is just been willing to experiment, you know, through all of that, I have, I've like a, a website that's about stem cells. Got me totally into this whole other industry. That's super fascinating. And, you know, again, 20 years down the line, who knows what that's going to be. I learned all about courses. Now I'm learning about funnels, learned about content marketing. I learned about healthcare learn about moving. You know, we built a moving website just because so many people were moving across the country. And and I saw that and I learned all about that industry. So like, look, you can take this to the bank. Most of what I do fails, but it all kind of stumbles forward into this progression of being at a position where you're confident enough to like, just know what you're doing basically. Um, So if there's a wrap up, it's man, I, 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 I definitely see a lot of people being crippled because it's like, what if this doesn't work? <laughs> and like, let me tell you something, it's, it's probably not going to work, <laughs> right? Like yeah. it's, probably, it's just probably not going to work. But you know, Nicholas Cole says this a lot and we got to have him on the podcast one time because he and I finally have to duke it out. I think we've, he's, we've he's now said that. Incredibly on, wrong. Yeah, we've yeah, now said that on five, like five different shows. So <laughs> when this finally happens, it's going to be like the rumble in the jungle. <laughs> Yeah, but he does say something that I think really, uh, he says volume wins, like volume wins. All the famous artists got famous out of one painting out of like a couple thousand, you know, Edison mm. took 10,000 light bulb shots. So uh, yeah, don't be, don't be afraid to try and just keep experimenting and keep experimenting. And eventually you'll find that rare and valuable skill that you can basically ride off onto the sunset with. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, yeah. me too. Cool. Well, for everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. Uh, let us know what you think of this new structure. I think we're going we're gonna to keep playing with it for a couple of weeks and see yeah. how it goes. But the idea is, again, just to bring in new things that we're finding week to week that we're super stoked about uh, so that you can learn right alongside us. And then, yeah, thank you to everybody who's been saying nice things about the podcast. And we'll see you next week. All right, man. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening, guys. See you soon. <laughs>